Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in today. A question for you. What did your heritage give you? How does the legacy of your parents or your grandparents keep you afloat through life struggles? For today's guest, her answer was immediate. Darina's parents and grandparents taught her the value of hospitality. Over a decade ago, Darina Gilmore Young wrote Cora Cooks Pancit, a celebration of heritage, Filipino culture, the dinner table, and hospitality. The book, illustrated by Christy Valiant, won Picture Book of the Year from the Asian American Association, and a dozen years later, the book is incredibly now in its eighth printing. Over those 12 years, Darina ventured into nonprofit work and wrote more books, all while practicing hospitality. Then the unthinkable happened. Darina was widowed as a young mother to girls, just two, six, and eight years old. It was at that time that the value of hospitality and the family table deepened and became richer, as mealtimes were the times where Darina's community showed up to comfort her and when she grieved with her young daughters. Darina has remarried and now works with her husband to raise their young girls to coach runners, and yes, she's written another book with him. Through these massive life changes, Darina continues to welcome others to her table, where she has learned to embrace not only laughter and good food, but also to share tears and difficult stories. Welcome, Darina. Good morning. Hey there. Well, thank you um, so much for taking this time to get on with me, Darina. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about your podcast. And I was looking at your website today. You have gorgeous photos of food. I was like salivating. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's just really important to me. I was a wedding photographer and yeah. So to me, photographs really are about telling a story. And when I switched over to food photography, the standard route is kind of to do brand photography. And I just couldn't find any interest in it whatsoever. I just thought I want to take images that tell stories. And then I thought, well, what better way? than to actually tell stories, you know? Absolutely. And your photos do tell the story. I was going to ask you who took the photos. So that makes sense that you're a wedding photographer and used to telling the stories through the photos of an event and a relationship and all of that. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yep. Yes, exactly. It, It was a really natural fit, actually. But you really share this value of sharing stories through food, don't you? Yes. Yes. I could tell we are kindred spirits. So <laughs> I've been on lots of podcasts this year with my new book releasing, but when I got your invitation, I was like, oh, yay, we get to talk about food. Oh, I'm so glad. Yes. And I thought, well, this is kind of a long shot because I'm not really talking about running. I'm kind of doing a throwback to her older book. So I was Really, really thrilled. But like I said, I guess if it's a core value for you, then it's something you're always you're always up for talking about. For sure. Yeah. And I I'm hoping that I have a food book coming in the future. That's oh, that's not public, but I'm hoping to do a stories plus cookbook kind of book in the next couple of years. So 
Oh, we'll talk about that at the end. <laughs> yeah. I would love to hear about that. I'm I'm putting that in at the end there. So, well, let's yeah. talk about this one about Cora Cooks. Is it Pansit? Um, we say Pansit. Pansit. Okay. Yes. Cora Cooks Pansit. So, first of all, I'm a huge, huge fan of children's books. I honestly think children's books are some of the best literature and some of the best art that's out there. And your story really exemplified both, I thought. Absolutely. Yes. I did not do the illustrations. Yes. But I was <laughs> so pleased with the matchup with Christy Valiant. Um, my publisher chose her and she oh, did a phenomenal job. She did. And I loved the details. I was wondering how much you communicated because this one little detail kept standing out to me. It was the mother was wearing Crocs. And there was something about that detail. I thought, I wonder if Christy talked with, did she talk with you throughout, like to get your vision? How did that work out? You know, actually it's, it's interesting. And when I speak in the schools, I like to tell kids this story. Um, a lot of publishers, they have their own sort of stable of people that mm. they reserve to do illustrations or they seek out certain types of illustrators and the illustrators and authors generally do not talk at all. And part of it is because really? they don't want them to stifle the illustration process because most writers are not necessarily artists huh. and then the writer would try to dictate maybe a little bit too much. And so it was very interesting because I did not talk to Christy at all. Mm -hmm. There was one page that she had a question on because she wanted to make sure that it was culturally accurate mm -hmm. in describing the pot, the Ponseat pot yeah. that is talked about in the story. And so she did show me, the publisher allowed her to show me that page and make sure that was kind of, you know, what I had in mind, what I was describing. But outside of that, I did not see any of the illustrations until I held the book in my hands. <laughs> so she did an amazing job. And our book, the first year actually won the picture book of the year by the Asian American Librarians Association. I saw that. So we got to go to DC and get this great award and give speeches and whatnot. But honestly, the best part was sitting at dinner with her and oh. getting to hear her process of how she did her research. She actually photographed a Filipino family wow. and that gave her some of those details that you see in the illustrations. Wow. What an amazing story. And I applaud you because talk about giving up control. Yes, yes, it, it is definitely giving up control. And I have some friends who have sort of horror stories, but I would say for the most part, it is, I think, a wise choice because then the illustrator has this freedom to just go and mm. something usually emerges from that partnership that would have been very different if it was like an author saying, we'll do this on this page and that on that mm -hmm. page and this on that page. <laughs> that is so interesting to me. It's the opposite of what I would have thought, but it's very interesting and I'm glad it worked out for you. And she did really do a good job, I think, of reading your story because there's so much winsomeness to the story and just a sweetness that I feel she really, there's like an earnestness, I think, you know, Cora is such an earnest character and she really captures that in the photos, just in the look of her eyes, the looks on Cora's face. So well done to her and to you <laughs> for giving her that control. Thank you. Well, it was a fun project. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> as we kind of speak about the control, I'm wondering, of course, the closer something is to your heart, the harder it is, I think, to give up control. And 
as I read this, you know, I related a little bit to the daughter. I think in this stage of my life, I actually related a little bit more to the mother. And I'm just wondering, as you wrote this, how autobiographical was this? Did this come from something in your life? And did it come from a specific memory? Did it come from a specific heritage? And who do you relate to in this book? What a great question. Mm. Yeah, I wrote this book because it was very much my own experience growing Mm -hmm. up. And also since then, I have three daughters and so very much have this experience of cooking together in the kitchen as Mm -hmm. they have been growing up. So my family is from a multiracial heritage. My dad's side of the family is predominantly Filipino, Mm -hmm. but also Chinese and a little bit of Polynesian, so Hawaiian roots. And then my mom's side of the family is Italian Mm -hmm. with a little bit of Jewish and Armenian roots. And so this story was very much written as a tribute to my grandma, Cora, And I grew up in the kitchen with my grandma, Cora, and my aunties on my Filipino side. I actually did on the Italian side as well, but this one's about the Filipino side. And just the community and the camaraderie and the storytelling that would happen around the table Mm -hmm. was something that was really precious to me. And as I was starting out in writing children's books, I was originally a a journalist, but then Mm -hmm. ventured into children's books. I really wanted to capture the recipe, which is, I believe, the story behind so many of our favorite dishes and foods that we eat. And a lot of my cousins, my generation, didn't know how to make pansit and didn't have the recipe. And so I was preserving the recipe, but also the experience of Mm -hmm. being in the kitchen together with the others. Mm -hmm. Yes. So both things were just as important to you. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was my next question is why pansit? Because I'm sure that your grandma Cora had hundreds, you know, (laughs) certainly dozens of dishes. What was it about this one that really stood out in your mind? Well, you're right in saying that she had lots of dishes that she would make, but this Mm -hmm. was one of those central ones that would always show up, whether it was a birthday party Mm -hmm. or a Sunday afternoon or a celebration of a baby shower, Christmas, all those different kind of holidays and celebrations. And so it was kind of a natural choice. And then also, I think what I discovered along the way, and you know, Mm -hmm. this book has been out for more than a decade now. Yeah. Yeah. This book is really related to kids from all cultures because it's about noodles. Mm. And so, you know, whether you have sort of an Italian style sauce or, you know, a Chinese version of it Mm -hmm. or a Thai version, there's so many different cultures that utilize noodles in some of their signature dishes. And so I often talk about that with kids. Um, You know, what kind of sauce do you like on your noodles? And even if they've never heard of pancit before, Mm -hmm. it's an entry point to talk about food and culture. That is such a great point. Yes, there's so many cultures that have this noodle dish, not this one in particular, but noodles in common. And there's something very playful and childlike about noodles, isn't there? 
Yes. I think there's that element too. There's just something fun about kids, you know, playing with their noodles and slurping up their noodles. And I remember when my husband and I first got married and I introduced him to my Italian grandma and he was at her house eating like the special sauce with the spaghetti. And Uh he actually took his knife and fork and started to cut it up. (laughs) And my grandma like scolded him hardcore and he was taken aback because she was such a sweet lady, but she was like, oh, you don't eat the noodles that way. And so she showed him how to like roll it on his um, fork with the spoon, kind of more traditional Italian way. So, you know, there's all kinds of stories like that with noodles. That's I love that story. Now, was it different on the Filipino side than the Italian side, how you would eat the noodles? You know, I I think probably more traditional that I can remember is that Mm. we would eat our noodles in bowls Mm -hmm. and maybe more of a typical Asian way is that you bring your bowl to your face. Mm -hmm. And so whether you're using a fork or chopsticks, you kind of, you slurp your noodles into your mouth with your bowl close to your face, Yeah, uh, which is very different from American style of eating. It is very different. Yeah. Did you feel as a child in this very multiracial family, you know, this is just one example of how you would kind of differentiate even something as simple as eating noodles, you know, for the different sides. You know, sometimes we use the term code switching. Did you feel that you had to adjust behaviors or ways of speaking or even ways of addressing family? I'm thinking maybe in Asian culture and Italian culture, for instance, like shows of affection are very different. Did you find that that was ever like confusing to you as a child or difficult or was it just something that came really naturally to you? You know, I think as a kid, I didn't really grapple with that. And part Mm. of the reason why perhaps is that my mom, who's the Italian side of my family, she was a teacher and she taught social studies and cultures of the world. And she herself was very excited and enamored with sharing different ethnic heritage and culture and tradition with not only my brother and I, but with children that she taught. Mm. And so she was really conscious of not like putting us in those positions. Mm -hmm. And I would say both Filipino and Italian culture are very similar in that they're open, they're gregarious, Mm -hmm. they're loud. The Filipinos, sometimes we kind of call ourselves like the Latin Asians because (laughs) it's more of a warmer culture. (laughs) And my grandparents on my dad's side were very similar. They were the Mm. type of people where For example, they went on a trip to Italy with my parents Mm -hmm. and they immediately found this young Filipino couple in Italy and made friends with them and they invited them into their home. And my grandparents became like their Lolo and Lola because this couple was far from their family. So they would just make friends with anyone, anywhere. And a lot of times those connections were because of food. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That two totally different cultures and then, but shared values and a shared love of food made it almost erase those cultural bounds. Yeah. And I would say, you know, more as an adult, I have noticed some of those nuances that you're talking about of, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the code switching and different things that I have to do as an adult when I'm in different spaces and maybe people don't understand, you know, or maybe even have an interest in learning about a cultural background. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, I don't think I was cognizant of it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're saying people may not be interested in learning about yours, or are you saying that when you're in groups with other cultural backgrounds, you might be sensitive and then you feel uncomfortable that other people aren't as sensitive? 
Maybe both, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes we start to just assimilate and we don't realize. And especially since I am from a multiracial heritage, I think I code switch well without mm-hmm. realizing. <laughs> mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. even with my girls, I am trying to be intentional about empowering them to just be excited about their heritage and be willing to share it with others, but also, mm. you know, to learn about other styles of eating, other cultures. For example, we just started eating a soup called pho that mm-hmm. is common in Vietnamese and some Thai families. We have some great restaurants here in Fresno that serve pho, and I learned how to make it at home in my Instant Pot. And so that's not something I grew up with, but it mm-hmm. is definitely something my kids love and a style of eating, a style of making this really nourishing soup mm. that has become a part of our family culture, even though it's not like our blood heritage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to me the way that here in America, sometimes we Americanize things for really practical reasons. You know, it's not Today, I released an episode with the great British Bake Off semifinalist from this year, Hermine, and she gave me a dish from Africa. And it's really, really, really hard to find one of these ingredients. It's like a melon seed powder, you know, and there are African markets around here, but not everybody in their busy life has, you know, they might want to make this, but they don't have time to go to an African market to pick up like one ingredient for it, you know. And sometimes we adjust recipes for convenience. And I'm almost going to use the word arrogance. We just kind of want to do it our own way and we lose touch with the authentic approach to creating this recipe. So when you wrote this book and you did give us a pancit recipe at the end, did you find that you had to adjust things just to work for either the American palate? You know, that's another thing is a lot of times we can't handle foods as spicy as a lot of my guests give them to me. (laughs) The number of times I've had to go out for scotch bonnet peppers that I can't even touch. (laughs) You know, did you find that you had to make any compromises when you wrote down this recipe for the book? Or was this identical to the way you remembered it? You know, the funny part is, and this is maybe common with some of the older generations, Mm. is that we had recipes, but we didn't have instructions. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, kind of some scratchings of my grandma's, you know, these were the ingredients that she would put in because we would ask her for the recipe. But that was partly why I wrote the book, because I wanted to also capture the process of it. And that might not be intuitive for generations to come if they hadn't actually watched grandma do it. So I don't think I made huge accommodations thinking about an American audience necessarily, but it's a recipe that comes out of observing and my mom and I kind of observing grandma Cora, what she did and then participating in it. Mm-hmm. And then even I would say the way that I make this recipe now is a little different from what I put in the book 11 years ago. Yeah. Um, because I've made it so many times and now I have like an electric skillet and I have an instant pot. Yeah. <laughs> I can make my chicken quickly. And I've made this dish for dozens and dozens of classrooms as mm. I've talked with kids and shared my books. So there's mm. certain things that I've adjusted even to make it, you know, a little bit more streamlined. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beauty of a recipe, right? I mean, mm. it changes over time and that's part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. It's not that we have to stay stuck because a story is continuously being written. I really like that. I appreciate that. Thank you. 
I think that releases some of us sometimes, you know, as we want to do things in an authentic and respectful way. But also, like you said, things change. So I really appreciate that perspective. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that especially with these types of signature dishes, I mean, if you showed this recipe to Mm. 10 different Filipinos, they would probably argue about what goes in it or what they did in their family and what order and all of that. And, you know, the same happens on my Italian side of the family for the secret red sauce, you know, so. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I released an episode about jollof rice, which is a classic Nigerian dish a few weeks ago. And I was talking with a Ghanaian friend before I did. And she was just like, Becky, I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't do this right, all of West Africa is going to troll you. But the problem (laughs) is none of West Africa agrees on the right way to do it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I thought, okay, no pressure, no pressure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. So now I think, I think you've slipped in the answer to this question and I I have a guess what you're going to say, but The recipe in the book is named after Cora's grandfather, Lolo, and he was a cook in a kitchen. And I'm wondering if Grandpa Lolo was based on anyone in particular. And if so, can you tell me the real life story of that person? Yeah, well, this is an interesting sort of backstory related to my Cora book. Um, I actually did some research for another book project that I had in the works. And I did some interviews with local friends who were Filipino. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends, Rebecca Tarosian is her name. She shared with me the story of her dad, who was a Filipino cook for the farm workers in California. And so Mm -hmm. that's a little piece that's in the Cora Cook's Ponseat book, which is not my family story, but it's a little bit of her story that Her dad used to go and he would cook all this Filipino food for the farm workers who worked in the fields. And so she talked to me about growing up and learning from her dad, Lolo, which is really the name for grandpa in Tagalog. And so I kind of inserted a little bit of her story because I wanted to ground the story in a setting. And since I live in California now, there's a bit of history there with the Filipino farm workers, which interestingly enough, my dad did pick, he was working in the fields during the summertime when he was in high school living in California, but he didn't necessarily have a food related story. So that's why I incorporated (laughs) Rebecca's story in there too. It all, it all comes together nicely. Yeah. I see that. Now, is there a little bit of a, um, you know, sometimes certain regions of the country. So for instance, in my region of the country, in the mid 80s, there was a massive influx of Vietnamese immigrants because of particular things that were happening in Vietnam. Can you tell me a little bit about the farmers in California, the Filipino farmers in California? Did that kind of happen in a wave? Did that happen over generations? Were there large families that came? What was going on in the Philippines? Can you tell me a little about that? I don't know if I know all the details of the history. I do know the stories that my dad would tell me. Um, He was part of a large family. And so he and his cousins, they all kind of came over actually by way of Hawaii. A lot Mm. of them were grounded, first immigrated to Hawaii Mm -hmm. and then came to the mainland. And so he was in high school, I think. 
when he first came to the Bay Area. And at that time, there was a good number of Filipinos who were picking like the strawberries and the grapes in the fields in the central and northern California regions. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of Mexican farm workers, as well as other parts of Central America that are you know, very prominent, especially mm-hmm. where we live. But I just remember hearing some of those stories. And that's why mm-hmm. I really did a little bit of extra research and found Rebecca. Actually, she married into a farming family and was from this area from a small town called Kingsburg. And I met her at a farmer's market and hmm. we immediately bonded. She was actually selling peaches wow. through her family's farm, but we bonded because we were both Filipino and loved to cook and we would trade recipes and she would, you know, bring peaches for my girls. Aww. And so it just kind of brought together some of that little bit of family history that was part of my family. But then this greater story, like you're talking about, that was about the Filipinos who were trying to come to this country for the first time. And mm-hmm. I remember hearing stories about all of my dad's cousins who eventually went to college, graduated from college, some of them with master's degrees, yeah. but they had all started out picking in the fields. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the Amer- American story in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's repeated across cultures, across families, across generations over and over and over. That's the American story. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I love how it plays out a little bit differently with, you know, the different immigrant groups. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, again, as I read this story, I love that it ends with the family table, right? Like it's not that she just finished it and then she ate it. It ends with a family dinner. So can you tell me a little bit about family dinners for you? Like, for instance, you said that you made this in some part of your motivation was even for your cousins. So tell me a little bit what family celebrations were like for you as a child and how important they were to you growing up and to preserving that heritage, I guess. Yeah, I love that you noticed that in the illustrations that they end around the table. And actually, just a note in the book, you know, I mentioned before that my grandma's name was Cora mm-hmm. and it mentions her siblings. So I actually did incorporate the names of some of my grandma's siblings. Aww. So my uncle Crispin is her brother that's at the table. And we have, I think we have Sarah. So I have an auntie Sarah who is still alive. Mm-hmm. And we have Prim, my auntie Prim, who's gone to heaven now. But I did kind of incorporate some of that to honor my aunties and uncles. And that's great. Because of what you're saying, you know, I remember going to these family gatherings and actually I didn't grow up in California. I grew up in Chicago. So my family was a little bit separate, but we would come to California for holidays, sometimes at Christmas time or sometimes in the summers. And so it was a a treasure for me to be at those baby showers or birthday parties or anniversary parties with all of my cousins. And Mm. it really was a communal thing. I mean, I don't think we ever could all sit down at one table because there were people (laughs) spilling from all rooms of the house. Yeah. But I just, I loved those times. And I feel like my grandma had this bottomless 
pan of pancit that somehow mm-hmm. fed like dozens upon dozens of people, including neighbors who were not blood relation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> would somehow wander over. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I, I did have that experience growing up. It was important to my parents that we um, be at the table together. Mm-hmm. And my mom was a wonderful cook. And so maybe more so than, than other families that time at the table was really important in our family, even though, you know, my brother and I were involved in sports and other things, we were a busy family, but Mm -hmm. we tried as much as possible to eat together. You made that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you grew up in Chicago and the rest of your family was in California, but your grandmother, Cora, she lived with you guys. Am I wrong on that? No, actually she lived in California. She did. Yeah. Okay. So we would go and visit her in California. And that's why it was this treasured kind of yes. event and memory. Yes. She would also visit us often in Chicago. And so we would make Filipino foods and all different types yeah. of foods together with her in Chicago too. It kind of sounds like you were the one that really treasured this time in the kitchen with her though, and really absorbed this knowledge. Was that a, is that true? And B, is that just something that came to you naturally? You just love to be in the kitchen? Yeah, I think both of those are accurate. Mm. I, I really, I grew up in the kitchen with my mom. I remember being a very little one and my mom was the type of person who always would include my brother and I, and she wasn't mm-hmm. too afraid of making a mess. Mm. And she very much wanted us to learn the technique and the traditional recipes of both sides of our family. Mm-hmm. So I did spend a lot of time in the kitchen. And I think I'm more nostalgic about it as an adult. Mm. And especially after I became a mom, Mm -hmm. because I realized, especially in my circle of friends, that very few of them had that experience. In fact, when my husband, Eric Lee, and I first got married, we started something called cooking club Mm -hmm. at our house and we did a run of cooking club for, Oh my goodness. I don't even know eight or nine years with other couples. And there were 10 couples by the end. We had just a gaggle of kids. I don't even know how many. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. In the beginning, it was like, quite literally my friend Marcy and she loves to tell this story who did not know how to boil water <laughs> my friend Allison who did not grow up cooking mm-hmm. who I had asked to cut a tomato and had no clue and now she's a wonderful cook but it was Amazing. just me teaching her how to like use the knife there were so many stories like that of the friends around me and some were really great cooks and did grow up with their parents or yeah. families teaching them to cook but we would share the learning through that cooking club, we would meet each month and we would, you know, sometimes have a French theme or we would do a barbecue theme or we'd have, you know, some kind of contest. And through the years, we really kind of taught ourselves and each other how to cook. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was another reason why this was really important to me because as I was growing up, I just thought it was normal. Yeah. But as I got out kind of into the world and became a mom, I realized, oh, this is actually a skill and a value that is unique to my family that I could share with others. Yes, that resonates with me. And it is kind of like a poverty of learning to not know how to cook because we have to feed ourselves. We just have to feed ourselves. When you think of your grandmother, Cora, and your Filipino heritage in particular, I'm sure your Italian heritage as well. Do you feel like there's things that were passed along, values, stories, 
cultural traditions, do you think there were things passed along that you feel enrich your life now besides the food? Hello, listeners, and excuse this interruption. I want to thank Darina for mentioning at the beginning of the episode that I take photographs of every recipe my guests share. As a former wedding photographer, I specialize in taking storytelling photos that celebrate extraordinary light and fresh ingredients. Our family's living spaces are full of images celebrating the diversity and beauty of nature's bounty and the powerful stories my guests have shared. And now I've opened a shop to share these images with you. These still life images are perfect for your cooking and eating areas from breakfast nooks to coffee bars behind the stove above the sink on your shelves, just dozens of places. Because this is an international podcast and you, my listeners, thank you, have put this on the top 100 documentary charts in over 15 countries, I wanted these prints available worldwide without exorbitant shipping costs. Therefore, in addition to fine art prints, canvases, and framed products, I do offer digital images that you can print yourself. So to browse these storytelling photos that celebrate the heritage of my guests and their stories, simply visit thestoriedrecipe.com and click on the print shop. Thank you for permitting me this interruption. And now let's return to Dorina. This kind of flows out of the food, but I would say hospitality mm. is one of those values that has bloomed from that. And mm-hmm. I mentioned and alluded to it a little bit before, but my grandma was the type of person who would invite everyone and anyone to mm. dinner. <laughs> yeah. And she had a reputation for you know, literally reaching out to the neighbors or mm-hmm. people that she worked with, making people family who were friends. Yeah who didn't have a lot of family connections in town, those types of Mm -hmm. things. And I would say that that is a value of hospitality. And Mm -hmm. I see that in her son, my dad and Mm -hmm. my mom. It's I'm sure one of the reasons why my parents, um, Mm -hmm. you know, came together Mm -hmm. is because they too have that. And so I mentioned growing up in Chicago, well, we didn't really have any blood relatives in Chicago. We moved away from California when I was two. And at the same time, my parents through the years, through church and through people in the neighborhood and other connections that they made, they built a family and it's because they were hospitable. Hmm. Um, You know, Christmas or Thanksgiving, they would, they would see the families in town or the families in our church who didn't have other connections and they would invite them to come and share those celebrations with us. And that's something that I love and I value. And even in the home that my husband and I live in now, um, we bought this home with hospitality in mind. Mm -hmm. It's a bigger home than we as a family need, but it has some spaces where now I can, well, maybe not in 2020 or 21, (laughs) but on a, on a normal year, if there's such a thing anymore, (laughs) I invite, you know, people to my table, regularly. We have a life group through our church. So there's five families that come to Sunday supper on a regular basis. We host a Bible study. We coach our daughter's track and field and cross country teams. Mm -hmm. So, you know, tons of teenagers who are hanging out in our house that I'm feeding comfort food. Those types of things, I think, are an extension of that value of hospitality that I learned um, by way of my grandma. And then it was definitely exemplified through my parents. Mm. Love that. Love that. Thank you. Yeah. So 
I want to keep talking about this. And as soon as you start to read through your stuff, whether it's your website, your Instagram account, anything, you do start to realize really quickly that you've been through a lot of difficult things in your life. And for me, I think the death, the illness and the death, because I'm sure the illness was difficult as well, of your first husband, Eric Lee, that is a really devastating thing. I think that's a lot. That's kind of the worst nightmare. A lot of a lot of people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in my in my situation and your situation. So, I'm wondering if any of these things, food, particularly the hospitality, because you've named that as one of the best things that came out of your childhood, the value of hospitality, this kind of clinging to the family table. You know, really being committed to gathering around it. Were any of those things helps through that time? Or would you say it was really something else (laughs) that got you through that? And it's just, it's too much of a stretch to put those together. No, you know, I think it is really fitting. Um, Hmm. We do spend a lot of time around the table and especially um, my husband, just to give listeners a little context, he was diagnosed with stage four melanoma cancer six years ago. Mm. And he actually went to heaven three months later. So it was very quick in Mm. terms of the journey. It was a sucker punch to the gut for us. He was a healthy guy and he and I were actually operating a nonprofit organization in Haiti at the time. So we were doing a lot of traveling. Mm. Our girls were ages two, five, and eight. And so I was a widow at age 37, not at all what I had ever dreamed or expected. Um, Mm. But I do think that as I reflect on it, and I've really never thought about it in this way before, but it was that familiar coming back to the table Mm -hmm. that was, I think, part of our comfort in our grief Mm -hmm. journey. And there's a couple of reasons why I say that. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that people in my community did for me after his death is that they fed us. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, that's in different places, maybe different cultures that may play out differently, but we were very involved in our Christian culture through the church that we attended. There were so many people who supported our nonprofit. And so it was a way that people could love on us. Mm -hmm. And so they literally fed us for probably a good three months. I mean, not just a couple of weeks. I'm talking about months where people would come to my door. There was meal plans that were set up and schedules that my friends did and people would bring us dinners and give us gift cards and, you know, buy me groceries at Whole Foods, like because they knew partly that that was valuable to me. And also it was a way that they could love on us in the middle of the awkward and the Mm -hmm. horrific loss. And Mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, I think about having three little kids during that time and just the functionality of having someone else feed me at least once a day was amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because we know grief is exhausting. Yes. And motherhood of two, five and eight is exhausting. Yes. All of it. And, you know, honestly, when he was sick because I was his caregiver, there was several months there that I wasn't eating. I wasn't eating well. I was, he had a very regimented diet. And so I was feeding him around the clock and just didn't even have the energy or the appetite to eat very much. Mm -hmm. And so I had to really spend those months kind of nourishing myself well. Mm -hmm. And I think that also kind of returning to the idea of the table, a lot of our processing of our grief happened at the dinner table. Mm 
Mm. So my kids, you know, we would just start sharing memories about daddy or Mm. um, memories of certain foods that we would eat together with him, Mm. those types of things. And as a mom of those little kids, I felt like, wow, this, you know, navigating this is not in my wheelhouse, Mm. but it naturally kind of happened when we were at the table together because Mm -hmm. we were eating and we were able to share what was on our hearts. And sometimes those were tears. Mm, (laughs) Um, Of course. Yeah. Mm. I have a little sign that's a chalkboard sign that's in my dining room here in my new Mm -hmm. house. We've been here for two years, so I still call it my new house. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It says, uh, laughter, tears, and good food are always welcome at our table. Mm. And it's kind of one of those family values sort of mottos that I think I made up or maybe Mm -hmm. just kind of gleaned from (laughs) different places. But it's really important to me because of what we went through that people understand that when they come to my table, I'm going to feed them well. Mm -hmm. And there's inevitably going to be some silliness and some laughter, but there's also a welcoming of tears and grief. Mm-hmm. And people have permission to bring their hard stories to our table. And mm-hmm. it's really because we've lived that ourselves. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that family table, the dinner table, right? Because it's not always family is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. Yeah, I think if any of us ever questioned that, you've kind of put that to rest. <laughs> it's a very powerful thing. So, well, I mean, we're going really deep about the meaning of food and the table. And I want to go even deeper because I don't think there's anything really deeper in any of us than our faith, whatever that may be. And that's very different for all of my listeners. But for you, your faith is something you write about a lot. It's something you live out loud. It's something you know you wear on your sleeve. You've talked about it already in this interview. Do you think that your faith and food or faith and the table or faith and even cooking are related? Do you think that food or cooking or the table strengthens your faith? You know, I I put this in here. I think of, you know, Eric Little and Chariots of Fire saying that when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. And for me personally, when I cook, when I chop vegetables and I see beautiful light, my family thinks I'm crazy. I cook with the lights off all the time because I just love beautiful soft light to come in and just, you know, the earthiness of these vegetables that are so beautiful and so nourishing and so delicious <laughs> to me personally are a sign that God loves me. And I know that's not how it is for everybody, but I'm wondering if food or the table or cooking strengthen your faith at all. Are the two related, do you think? Oh, I love how you articulated that because I definitely can resonate as well. I do believe that food is created by God. It is something that he made for us to enjoy Mm -hmm. and to nourish ourselves well and to celebrate with. And so I believe that food and tasting food is part of the experience of Mm -hmm. tasting God's glory, of Mm -hmm. kind of entering into that. And so the community that happens around the table or that precious moment that you're talking about of chopping the vegetables in the, the soft light. (laughs) Um, Those are, I think, invitations for us to commune with God. Yes. I I feel the same. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It's something I hope that I get to write a book about one day. Honestly, I've thought about it a lot because I recognize that, you know, some of it has to do with the hospitality um, Mm -hmm. and some of it has to do with the solitude and connection that happens when we cook, when Hmm. we chop, when we prep things, Mm -hmm. um, the care that we take in perhaps arranging things on the plate or the platter. Mm -hmm. All of that is an expression of creativity. And I believe that we're created in God's image. And so he made us creative beings. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I love cooking. We have a busy family Mm-hmm. So some nights I make meals in 15 minutes and other nights I might take an hour or two mm-hmm. and whatever you know amount of time that I invest into that. For me, there is a calming that happens even in the preparation. And I know yes. that's not true for everyone, but for me, that's a place where I do feel like I'm connecting with God. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because you've talked so much about hospitality and we talked about the book ending around the family table and cooking is about gathering, 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 but it is also about solitude. I agree. I think there are times where I really need the help of the kitchen (laughs) and there's times when I really want the company and there's times when I do want it to just be me. I like that you brought in the solitude aspect as well. It's true. Food is always good. (laughs) It's always a good (laughs) gift. And I just, I mean, I think of that verse that says, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? There's just a reason why he uses that image in my mind, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I love how you brought up the quote of Eric Little Mm. in Chariots of Fire. And actually his life and his biography is one of our favorites. My my late husband, Eric Lee, loved his story so much. Mm. But it talks about feeling God's pleasure. And really that's a quote from the movie, not necessarily from his biography. Mm. Mm -hmm. But That idea, I think, you know, for me, I feel his pleasure when I'm running because Mm -hmm. I'm a runner. Mm -hmm. I feel his pleasure when I'm in the kitchen and I'm getting to combine different ingredients like you talked about. For many years, gardening was Mm. on my (laughs) to-don't list, (laughs) Uh, meaning that I just didn't have time for it with kids Mm -hmm. and the demands of my own career and all of that. But in the the past year with the pandemic, Mm -hmm. the one thing I did is I asked um, some family members to help me build a little garden box. And I don't know very much. (laughs) I'm not going to call myself like an expert gardener, but just to put the seeds in the soil Mm -hmm. and to watch the eggplant and their beautiful purple color and the basil and the tomatoes and the rhubarb emerge. And there was just something healing in my soul Mm -hmm. to be able to take those ingredients and then bring them into my kitchen and Mm -hmm. create dishes with them. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'm not so much of an expert on the gardening side but there was something really healing about being able to do that, especially in this year where we've Mm -hmm. all experienced a lot of loss and disappointment, just the earthiness of that experience. I felt like it was God's pleasure to Mm -hmm. just be able to enjoy something simple. Well, I think to be so connected to our provision, you know, is it breeds a sense of gratitude, you know, there's just something that's being so close to 
so to the way God made it, like it's just, just these miracles of things coming up. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. Yes. And and again, all for our good. Like it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it could just be beautiful mm-hmm. or it could just be healthy or it could just be delicious. Any of those things would be enough. But all of it together, I can hardly even talk about it without crying. <laughs> it's just and so that's amazing. The, to that's me. the glory. Like it touches something yes. that is almost hard to describe. Yeah. Agreed. I completely agreed. So you brought up running and we're kind of getting ready to wrap up here. So I would just love to hear a little bit more about your more recent projects. I know that a lot of them have to do with running. And I'm also curious just to keep it on the theme as we talk about running and your recent projects. Do you look at food differently now as a runner? Mm, Good questions. I love it. Thanks. So I want to just give a little bit of context for listeners here. I actually did get remarried in 2016 Mm -hmm. to a man named Sean, who was one of Eric Lee's dear friends, a friend of ours through the years. And so I mentioned Sean because he's my running buddy. He's my coach. He's my partner. (laughs) And Sean and I actually just released a book this year called Walk, Run, Soar, which Mm -hmm. is a 52-week devotional for runners. And so it's really thinking about faith and running, or if you're a walker, that's fine. Any pace is great. This is not for elite athletes at all, Mm. but running is, um, something that is a part of my life. It's been a hobby. I was an athlete when I was a young person. And now I like to say that running is my therapy. Mm -hmm. I really believe that running was one of the things that helped me through my grief journey these last six years Mm -hmm. and has really connected me with people in the community as well. So that part of it um, is what I write about in my new book. And I love your story or your question about food too. Because, you know, of course, food is has to be related to running because we have to nourish ourselves in order to go out and do exercise um, or vice versa. I don't believe in running for burning calories and for counting pounds. And Mm -hmm. so I want to be really clear with that. Mm. I do think it is important for us to think about what we put in our mouths Mm -hmm. and to think about, you know, We've talked about the glory of vegetables that are from the garden. And for me, I do care a lot about good quality ingredients. We try not to eat a lot of processed foods or fast food in our home. I'm not religious about that, but I do believe in eating the things the way that God designed them. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with my running because I know that I feel better when I'm running if I'm eating well. Mm -hmm. And so I am mindful of that. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean we don't celebrate. It doesn't mean that I don't (laughs) eat Christmas cookies yes, yes, (laughs) or make sourdough bread or all of those wonderful things as well. But I do kind of in a similar way think that you know, running is an opportunity for me to connect with God, for me to use my body in the way that it's created to move. And even as a kind of therapy for mm-hmm. mental health, um, for grief, for loss and food can be part of that too. And mm-hmm. so I love, um, I love going for a long run and I love making a nourishing meal when mm-hmm. I come home or I love going out you know, when it's not COVID times with a group of Mm -hmm. friends and going running and then, you know, having a pancake party Mm -hmm. when everybody comes over to my house and 
every year, especially in the fall, we like to make pumpkin pancakes. That's great. (laughs) Kind of like that intersection that happens with the running and the food at our house as well. Yes, absolutely. The two definitely go hand in hand because like you said, you have to feed yourself to live, but you have to feed yourself to live and to keep yourself going when you're a runner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a really busy, I mean, you're your career is, I, I wouldn't say exploding because you've been successful for a long time, but you oh, have you. Um, a successful career and you're obviously a busy mother. You have done all of this through a grieving process. What do you do? You know, as a former guest once said, cooking is a joy and it is a labor. And there are times when cooking becomes exhausting. And I do not want to overly romanticize it on this podcast so that people who are in a phase where it just becomes exhausting feel like there's something wrong with them or they're not grateful or anything like that. So what do you do? How do you handle the cooking burnout that's inevitable, you know, for those of us that are responsible to feed, you know, five or six or eight people a day, day in and day out and guests and other other friends as well? Yeah. You know, for me, I think it is really important to have a plan. Mm. So I have usually on Sundays that I will plan out the meals that we're going to eat, mostly the dinner meals. I have some sort of regular things that I buy for my kids for breakfast and my husband does lunches. So I do really appreciate that. But as far Mm -hmm. as the the main meal that we're going to come together, I have a little notebook where I write out what we're going to eat and I make my grocery list And in this season, I'm ordering groceries for the most part and running to Trader Joe's every couple of weeks because that's Mm. my favorite store. But having a plan, I think, helps. And I do have some kind of different days that really help me. So just as an example, we every Thursday, we eat Haitian rice and beans. Mm. It's a very simple meal. I share on my blog, actually, the recipe for the Instant Pot. It's something I can make very quickly. I started doing it on Thursday nights because Thursday nights were a track night. So we Mm -hmm. would go as a family out to the local track and run with other families. And so I didn't have as much time for prep and cooking and everyone was ravenous when we came home. (laughs) So I could make the rice and beans in about 15 minutes. And also just for us, the practice of eating something simple and remembering our friends in Haiti, Mm -hmm. it's been something, you know, that's good. Now that's a quick meal. So that's always on my schedule. Mm -hmm. And then on Tuesdays, we always have some form of tacos. We do taco Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes, you know, that's a real quick meal. Other times, maybe I'll take time to do an enchilada meal, or I'll put some more interesting ingredients from our Mm -hmm. garden that will go into the tacos. Other times it's just chicken tacos with, you know, the, the usual things, olives and guacamole and peppers and things that my kids like. And Mm -hmm. that's a meal where my husband or my daughters can actually fill in and they can make it themselves. And so it's not just up to mommy to make that meal. Yeah. And then there's other times where I will intentionally take time to make a more, I would say like intensive sort of meal, like a Friday night or a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. Um, I will take that time because I enjoy cooking. Yes. Because I enjoy chopping the vegetables like we talked about. And so I might do, you know, something a little bit more elaborate on those nights. And sometimes we give our, ourselves permission to order food. So I yes, don't of course. have this like science to it, 
but one of my favorite things in the world is just to peruse cookbooks. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I read recipes and don't use them, but I Mm -hmm. get inspired by them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Me too. Mm -hmm. So probably the only thing I collect is cookbooks. And it's my special thing that I do on Sunday afternoons is that I kind of get out some cookbooks and plan a couple of meals a week where I might try a new recipe and those regular meals that I mentioned on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And and I just look at our family calendar. Like if if this is going to be a busy night, like kids are going to youth group or they're going to a track meet or something else, then I pick something that I can make quickly. So it's not burdensome. Right. The other days I give myself permission to enjoy that time in the kitchen. Yes. Yes. And because you're not burning yourself out every night of the week, when you do have the time, you can enjoy it a little bit more. Yes. And I will say, I think I've grown in that area when my kids were younger and, you know, they were at home and we had a little bit less in terms of a budget. Mm -hmm. I made everything from scratch and Mm -hmm. I did wear myself out in some seasons. And so that's part of, I think the, the present season that I'm in with, you know, having a career and my kids going in all different directions is just being able to say, it's okay to sometimes buy the, you know, the orange chicken from Trader Joe's and just throw it in the oven. Like it'll be all right. Yeah. And it's still, you know, a relatively healthy option. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, food can't become (laughs) just to continue on the Christian theme or the religious theme. Food can't become an idol. Right. And I do think that sometimes we can you know, like you're, (laughs) I'm looking at the snow outside and my kids are running in it. And it's like, you're going down a track, you're making that sledding track. And then you just kind of like veer off. And it's like, food is good. Food is good. Food is the most important thing. And you get kind of cranky and you get grumpy and you get, you can get controlling about food and other people eating it. So it's good that I think we can sometimes say, well, it is just food after all. And the table and the time and all the other things we're meant to do, like it's meant to serve those things, right? Rather than being the end all be all. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are some really good points. And and sometimes mm-hmm. for me, just giving freedom, letting my kids mm-hmm. create in the kitchen. <laughs> my husband, Sean, is a marathoner and a triathlete mm-hmm. and he was a single guy for lots of years. So mm-hmm. he has like his very regular things that he would eat. So I let him do his own lunch. He eats like pretty much the same thing every day. It's a sandwich with spinach and cheese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's so boring to me. Like I would never eat that, but I'm, it's very I'm utilitarian. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's functional. He's yes. nourished. Well, I let him do his thing. I have my, you know, eggplant Parmesan leftovers and enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. You have a good system, a good system. Well, we will just end with this. And then I want to know where everybody can find you in your work. So I had quit running about five years ago. I agree that it's great for mental health. I had some really significant postpartum depression after the first couple of my kids. And it turned out that I had a thyroid that wasn't working at all. And so that that'll, that'll do a number on you. And I just don't think I ever really would have recovered if I didn't start running, but for a lot of reasons, I stopped about five years ago. I started doing other things. I said, I'm never going to start again. My oldest challenged me to get ready for a five mile race. That is this Saturday. (laughs) And I did it. I'm all trained up. So do you have any tips for me for the race this um, Saturday? Oh, I'm so proud of you. That's great. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Okay. The one little bit of advice I will give you. Yes, please. Is 
that when you feel like you maybe are hitting the wall, which is a term we use in running, yes. like you just feel like you cannot go any further. Um, yeah. For me, when I'm running a half marathon, that usually happens around mile 10, where it's yes. like, oh, wow, I've already committed this far. I cannot turn around, but I really am not quite sure if I can get to the finish line. Yeah. That's when I do something called a gratitude mile. And especially if you're running with your husband, this might be something you could do together. I've done it with friends. I've done it with my husband where you start to feel that letdown that happens when you hit the wall and your body is like, oh, I'm running through molasses right now. Rebelling. Yes. Yes. Body, Like there's actually chemical things that do happen through the hitting the wall process. I won't go into all that, but just to say, I'm going to spend these next few minutes or this next mile in gratitude and to just start naming what are those things that you're thankful for? Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's your lungs that are working or it's these beautiful fiery colored leaves that are outside or well, in your case, maybe the sparkling (laughs) drifts of snow, (laughs) the sparkly drifts of snow. I love it. Maybe it's these faithful running shoes that I've had all year, you know, whatever it is. And even just kind of saying those out loud, or if you're, you know, for people who might be running on their own to be able to say it to yourself, it is actually a game changer. And it's something that I've done with my friends. I I talk about it in my book as well, but I love that. I just suggest the gratitude mile. I absolutely love that. I'm going to do it. (laughs) I'm totally (laughs) going to do that. All right. So tell everyone where they can find your book, where they can find more of your writing. Tell everyone everywhere they can find you and connect with you. Thanks. Yeah. So probably the best way to find me is my website. It's darinagilmore.com. And I'm sure Becky will put that in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, You can connect with me on social media through that. You can find, I'm pretty much Darina Gilmore on all social media. I hang out on Instagram the most. And my new book is Walk, Run, Soar. So you can find out about that on my website. And I'll actually give a little bit of a a fun preview in 2021. I have a story and a recipe coming out in a new cookbook that is called the new Filipino kitchen. So that's kind of a fun thing that's in the works. I have some other projects in the works as well, but you can find me at my website and I would love to connect with you more personally. I send out a weekly little newsletter called my glory gram, and it's just an invitation to chase after God's glory. I love to share recipes there as well. Wonderful. Darina, it has been such a pleasure. I appreciate your time and your book and your recipe and your words so, so much. Thank you. What a delight. Thank you for this conversation. (laughs) My pleasure. I hope you have a great day. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Dorena. To find ways to correct with Dorena Gilmore-Young to buy Cora Cook's Pansit or her latest running devotional, Walk, Run, Soar, written with her husband, Sean, stop by thestoriedrecipe.com, click on episodes, and you will find all of that information in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, and I do hope you did, I need your help. First, please make sure you subscribe to hear new stories every Wednesday. Also, can you think of a friend or a family member that would also enjoy this story? Would you please send it along to them? And finally, if you would be so kind, rate and review the podcast in your podcast app to help others find it. Each of these supportive actions will be so helpful to me personally and will allow me to continue spreading my guest stories in their own voices and their own words more widely. 
thank you and have a great week, my friends.